Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. And today we're going to talk about food. I'm really delighted to have on the show Brandon Lisi, uh, president and owner of Object 9, a marketing strategist and a key driver in the development of the Georgia Grown Program, and Jack Spruill, who is the Director of Marketing at the Georgia uh, Department of Agriculture. Welcome, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Always start the show by asking, uh, what are the trends in your industry or area of expertise that you think CEOs need to know? And so, Brandon, I'll toss that question over to you to get us started. Sure. Well, there's, I think there are a lot of micro-trends that influence how people are consuming food. You know, in, in the world of wine, beer, and spirits, it tends to cycle from wine to beer to spirits every few years and whatnot in terms of what people are looking for. Right now, there's interesting trends around cereal consumption because it's going down because people want convenience and they want food bars and stuff they can grab and go versus actually cleaning out a bowl. That's mm-hmm. too much work. But I think the, the big trend that I see across all the different sectors, across all the different industries is the, the challenging of convention around what we eat, how we eat it, when we eat it, and this overwhelming sense that we need to stop doing it the way we did. Even sometimes, even if the right, the way we did things was good, there's a sense that we need to challenge those thinkings. And whether it's in technology or food or whatever, you see that trend of challenging convention emerge over and over and over again across all the different sectors. So it's how we're making the food, how we're consuming the food, how we're distributing the food, uh, what people want from that food. So there's a lot of change in the market, and that's obviously one of those things that's sort of an overriding theme in our culture right now, but it's really very true in every aspect of the food supply chain. Mm-hmm. And what about you, Jack? What trends are you seeing that you think are important for us to, for CEOs in particular to know? I think we're still on the, the, the leading edge of what is an old trend today to some degree, which is the local. I think we're still on this uh, upward movement to realize that that sourcing products from your local state, local county, people you know, is good for the environment, good for the economy. And and I think we're still on the leading edge of that. I think we are a long way from filling that. Mm. And so in terms of challenging convention, Brandon, can you give us a, an example, let's say, for example, in the consumption of food? You just mentioned the food bar thing, but uh, I mean, what are some specifics that people might be able to relate to in terms of, you know, how food is being consumed that's not the way that it was being consumed before? When you think about food, generally food that comes off of a farm ends up going into one of three channels. Right? It, gets into, it gets made into some other kind of product from a food manufacturer, I take blueberries and make a blueberry jelly out of it. It gets put into a grocery channel where consumers can come in and buy it when they're shopping or it gets put into a food service channel into a restaurant. So if you look at a lot of the consumption trends and let's just say, let's pick restaurants, for example, not only are they really gravitating to more and more local sourcing for a range of reasons, they're also rethinking the way they create the experience for the customer when people walk in. People are moving away from this transactional food mentality where I just want to get the food and throw it in my body and move on to the next thing. A lot of people are really looking at restaurants or places they buy their food 
as an environment to enjoy the food and consume the food in a more community environment. So that's a big trend for anybody looking at restaurants or coffee shops or somewhere else where it's not just come in, here's a restaurant, here's a counter, buy your food and get out of here. It's about the environment that you create for consumers while they enjoy your food. And that has a big play in how they experience the brand, perceive a brand and enjoy the brand. The rise, as Jack talked about, of local consumption impacts us pretty heavily in the grocery channel as well, because people are looking more and more for natural ingredients. There's government-mandated change coming next year with the elimination of artificial food colorings. And so food manufacturers and people that are in that world are scrambling around trying to figure out how they're going to reformulate their products. So there's a lot going on. And how is that actually going to work? Because there's so many artificial coloring. Like, what about M&M's? You know, like, you know, like. uh, Well, big challenge. Yeah. Big uh, challenge. Some of them. No more blue M&M's, right? Maybe not. Um, But, you know, for example, a lot of companies are looking at beetroot as a way of providing uh, red colorings instead of the red dyes. So there's a lot of product innovation. And that's what I want your CEOs to understand. There's. There is a tremendous amount of mandated change that's being pushed into the system. There's a a lot of mandated change coming from the consumers pulling products out of the system. And And within that change, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for business owners and entrepreneurs to find ways to solve some of these problems that these big companies struggle with. A lot of the innovation that ultimately ends up in big companies starts in small companies. And so having the business owners in your network start looking at the food industry, whether it's figuring out how to reduce farm inputs to innovations in fertilizer, energy consumption, fuel consumption, green technologies, et cetera, et cetera, all the way through what's happening in the restaurant on the plate, there is a tremendous amount of opportunity for new ideas and innovation that is going to drive the economy in the next 20, 30 years. And when you say consumers are pulling products off the shelf, what does that mean? Well, classic marketing is you push it or sell it into a distribution channel. So I call on a big box retailer or a restaurant and say, would you please buy my green beans or my peaches? And then we put them, they, they put those products on the shelf. So they say the grocery puts it on the shelf in the produce section and the consumers go and pull the product off of the shelf. So that's sort of the classic push-pull. You have to have a marketing strategy to push it into the distribution channel, and you have to have a marketing program to create awareness amongst consumers so they go in and pull it off the shelves, drive inventory turn, which is really the key for retailers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, have you noticed um, a shift in terms of what people are buying as well? Absolutely. Uh, Across the board, uh, people, are, specifically in the food area, Jack, absolutely. wouldn't you say, uh, absolutely. going back to the local side? Yeah. Uh, the, the, the change toward we're going to eat local, we're going to eat healthy, we're going to be aware of the labels, we're going to be, you know, we want to know where it came from, we want to know what it, what the experience was to produce this food. Years ago, there was put a face on your plate, and they wanted to actually know who the farmer was, who who did this growing of this product. They gave them great confidence in, in, in the fact that they were getting something healthy, something that was grown effectively, uh, whether that be peaches or green beans, as you said. It, it, it covered all facets of agricultural production. Now, I've heard this thing about people getting healthier, and yet there's still this um, raging obesity problem in the U.S. Do you have an 
any kind of an explanation for what the gap is? I think the gap starts with education and habit. So, you know, when I, when I mention that people are beginning to challenge convention at the beginning, there's a lot of decisions that we made in the 70s, 80s, even before that, in terms of how we were going to process food, package food, distribute food, how food needed to be consumed as families migrated from one worker family to two worker family as convenience became more and more of a driver in the economy. The reality is, especially with the economics of processed food, it's frankly a lot cheaper and easier to buy those kinds of processed foods that may not have all the health benefits that naturally grown products have. For kids, when we talk about obesity, a lot of it tends to get focused on the kids. The kids learn that behavior and those eating patterns from their parents. Until you educate people and give them the tools and the resources to change their eating consumption, the trends are gonna continue on the processed food front. One of the big things that I think has been really cool about Georgia Grown is the ability to open up conversations around some of the food deserts that happen down in parts of Georgia, well, really all over, but certainly here in Georgia, where we're allowing more people to have, making people aware of farmer's markets and the produce and the benefits of their products and how to cook them and how to prepare them. Ultimately, that's not going to be something that any government can mandate. I think it's individuals looking in the mirror and deciding I need to eat less, move around more, and make healthier decisions for myself and my family. And frankly, some people just don't have the motivation or the desire to change. Mm. But I think entrepreneurs can definitely present more options and be a part of that, just like the Department of Ag has and the Georgia Grown Program has in providing education and awareness about nutrition and the importance of eating healthy, and also the importance of how to eat healthy, how to prepare food in delicious ways. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people don't know how to do it. Yeah, it, 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 it is a, a bit of a re-education. And so, Jack, uh, for those listeners who may not be familiar, what, what is the Georgia Grown Program? Uh, there are some 38 states which have a state branding program for their agriculture. We're blessed in Georgia with an agricultural bounty uh, we're, we're number one in pecans, number one in poultry, number one in peach. No, pardon me. I almost said number one in peaches, although we are the peach state. We're not number one in peaches, number one in blueberries. We've got a lot of things that we are real grateful for. So uh, trying to brand the state's agriculture and agribusiness community so that people can go to the store, go to, the, to, the, to, the, to their produce aisle at their local grocery store with full reality to say this product was grown in Georgia. We recognize this brand. It is the state's brand of its agricultural bounty. And uh, of the 38 states that are trying to do the same thing, we'd like to think we're obviously the best. Uh, attended a conference last summer, Minneapolis-St. Paul area, and uh, went with the attitude of we want to learn what other state branding programs are doing and found immediately we were the spotlight state. And they wanted to know what the Georgia Grown Program was doing so well because they were extremely jealous of us, and that's a great place to be. Hmm. I think for the CEOs, one of the, one of the big emphasis this, that we placed when we launched the program, or I would say maybe relaunched, relaunched. The, relaunched the program. When was that? In January 2012. Okay. Uh, it was really the hard launch of the program. A lot of the state commodity marketing programs are, I would say, are state commodity advertising programs. Uh, there's a lot of awareness being created. It goes back to the whole thing of, I want to create awareness that drives people to go buy my product. 
what we did differently with the Georgia Grown program and why this is important to entrepreneurs in the state that want to grow their businesses is we focused on pushing the Georgia Grown brands and getting them placed into big retail distribution chains. So we formed partnerships with Kroger's and formed partnerships with Harvey's and we formed partnerships with um, Whole Foods and other distribution channels so that their buyers were going to specifically buy and market the Georgia Grown brands in their stores. And so that opened up distribution opportunities that did not really exist. What we found is you know, a lot of buyers in grocery chains want to buy locally, but the onus is essentially on those buyers to find and source people that can fulfill the demand in the stores. And simply put, Georgia Grown did a really good job of going out and finding all those emerging businesses or established businesses, putting them together in one easily searchable database and providing all that information to buyers that made their jobs easy. And so we helped the people source new brands and new products. And we obviously helped those brands and products open up new sales and distribution opportunities. And that led to a tremendous amount of awareness and engagement for our business owners. So as you think about food and the future of food, I mean, is let's talk about kind of the national perspective, Jack, you might know this, and then the Georgia perspective. Food is a commodity. And so, I mean, is, is agriculture, I mean, you're wagging your heads. No, it's not. Um, not all food not, is a commodity. Not all. Yeah. All right. Well, go ahead. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about why, you know, what is and what, uh, what parts of the um, food chain are commoditized and which ones aren't. Well, that, that's a... <laughs> we can answer that question in hours, but yes. Um, if you look at something like poultry, mm-hmm. as Jack said, we're the number one poultry producer. If you are, which is shocking, I did not know that. If you just looked at poultry and said, "Okay, there are parts of the chicken world or the poultry world," sorry, well, just call ch- yeah, say chicken because there are other poultry like quail and turkey and whatnot. But a lot of that is a you know get tends to become a commoditized product because there's so much of it. But Springer Mountain Farms, which is a producer of poultry, took an organic strategy and developed a different product that had a higher price point and is seen as a premium. And if you go into certain restaurants around town, you're not just buying chicken, you're getting Springer Mountain chicken. So the organic industry and people who have found certain unique varieties of different products uh, have figured out a way of pricing their products more as a premium. Grass-fed beef is another good example. We have a number of grass-fed beef producers out around Covington. Beef is a commodity. You go into the grocery store and you buy a package of beef, but you pay a premium for grass-fed beef. So there are parts of the agricultural economy that absolutely are commoditized, but there's a lot of diversity within the what is grown and what is ranched and what is raised or fished that offers uh, definitely some good margins for some of these producers. One of the struggles, Brandon, going on what you're saying, last year, Georgia became number one in blueberries. And the blueberry growers on on request asked us to come down and talk because their concern was, we don't want to be a commodity. We want to differentiate ourselves away from the fact, where is a blueberry from? because it can be from Florida, it can be from North Carolina, it can be from Michigan, but we're number one blueberry state. We don't want to be looked at as a commodity. We want to say we're a Georgia blueberry. The Georgia blueberry is sweeter. We have a different soil texture. 
And, and one of the phrases that came up in that, the Georgia blueberry is better because it's kissed by Southern dew. Well, it's a great statement for marketing. So, <laughs> so these people try to get away from being known as strictly a commodity. Yeah. And, and so to differentiate themselves, as Springer did, not to be considered just another commodity. Yeah, and, and there, there's a lot of innovation behind that. Now, in the world of agricultural produce, a lot of that innovation tends to spring out of research institutions and labs where they're trying to develop different varieties, not only to make them hardier, but also to make them more succulent. Uh, with the case of pecans, I want bigger pecans with thinner shells. You know, I want my trees producing tree nut meat versus shells, right? So there's a lot of different product innovation that goes in. And there's also a lot of different innovation that goes into the fertilizer, the energy, the sprayers, the chemicals, the, the, you know, the, the pesticides and things that you have to have to prevent um, things from damaging your crops. So there's a tremendous, you know, when we talk about it being a $77 billion industry in Georgia alone, that's not just what comes off of the farm. It's the entire industry around agriculture, the people fixing the refrigerators and the freezers and the coolers and the conveyor belts. And, and delivering the product, yeah. the trucking industry and yeah. how it touches so many people. Yeah. It is w without question at that $77 billion economic impact number, which is yearly published by the University of Georgia. That number, when we talk about the number of people it affects, farm gate value, there's, there's a formula that comes out of Indiana that says, based on this many dollars of farm gate value, how many products actually leave that farm gate, then we take, take a factor and multiply that factor to come up with an exacting figure of the actual economic impact. Uh, you mentioned not knowing that poultry was number one. Actually, the broiler industry, which is the chicken, uh, not the egg, is responsible for one-third of that total economic impact. Mm. Wow. The I think Chick-fil-A for some <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Based on the amount of traffic going around every Chick-fil-A I see. Uh, um, I was going to ask, though, you know, in this world of, you know, some uh, farmers being able to differentiate and, you know, some of it being commoditized, um, there's been a lot in the press about how difficult the farming business is has become or is becoming and like the the death of the small farmer. And I'm wondering if you want to comment on that. Evolution of, of farm size, farm capacity and, and efficiencies um, has been going on, I'm sure, since biblical times. Um, uh, it probably been escalated some because of technologies and the ability of some farmers to be able to grab that technology and move to the next step. Um, maybe it has been escalated, but um, farming has always been a tough business. Uh, th these people have faced, whether it be drought and weather conditions or, 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 or whatever, but they are a resilient group. Uh, Commissioner Black, who is the commissioner of the Georgia Department of Agriculture, has said that uh, the, the greatest challenge you can ever offer will always be accepted by the, the Georgia farm families, and they will conquer it. And, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. There is a bunch. Yes, there, there, there are some things. And we let's, let's be clear on commodities that we will never get away from being commodities. Cotton, the fiber of choice. There is no way that you can differentiate cotton. So it will always remain a commodity. Corn that goes into animal feed. It's always going to be a commodity. The soybean that we put into feedstuffs and that we use in baking and other is always going to be a commodity. Those prices are going down real dramatically right now. And, and that is a challenge. That is a daily challenge. I don't want to diminish it for these farm families in Georgia that they have 
seen some good years and now they're seeing some, some, some pretty desperate lean times coming. Will they survive? Absolutely, they will. Will they change? Will they mold themselves differently looking for other efficiencies? Absolutely, they will. But uh, there's nothing real new, I think, of this and, and the evolution toward larger. Uh, still not the, the, the enigma of the corporate farm. Well, yes, there are a lot of family farms because of tax purposes and legal purposes who now are incorporated, but they're not in our uh, negative stigma of the factory farm to be avoided. Most of them are still family-owned corporations, still very much family-controlled and very resilient group. Mm-hmm. I think there's also a lot of, there's an emerging generation of farmers. And you know, one of the things when I got involved with doing agricultural work and working with ag brands and food brands in particular, you know, you really see the courage and the conviction and the resiliency of this group. I mean, they're, they're a very optimistic group of people. You mean like Farmer D? You know Farmer D? I, I don't know Farmer D. Yeah. Um, but they're, you know, it's hard to make a generalization about a group of people like that. But almost to a man or a woman, they are resilient, optimistic, uh, determined. And they have a really strong value system about what is right. And they care greatly about not just producing a product to make money, but they're very proud of what goes off of their land. Uh, there's a much deeper meaning to this business than some of the other businesses that I've worked with. It's, you know, it's not just about making money. It's about it's how you spend your life. And there's a lot of value and goodness that comes out of that experience. And a lot of consumers don't necessarily appreciate that because they don't see it, right? It's just some no. commodity that shows mm-hmm. up on their shelf and their experience with food is you know, relegated to their local Kroger or their Harvey's or Whole Foods, their restaurants. But, but, but even with this change, and, and, and don't let us leave this thinking of we're, we're negative or naysayers, even with this change that is a constant evolution in the business we call agriculture, if we look at the University of Georgia, Fort Valley State University, Abraham Baldwin Agricultural College, their ability to place graduates with degrees in agriculture from those universities, there's a void. that They are looking for more. So whether these people, and we tend to think, I'm majoring in agriculture at the University of Georgia. I'm going to be in production agriculture. Those related jobs around that production agriculture a lot of us, I look back on the courses I had in college and say, what good were they to me in my real life? <laughs> uh, I'm, I, yes. Don't we, didn't we all have those college courses? But Calculus. If, if, yes. <laughs> but if, if you want to take the courses that, that, that the people majoring in ag at these universities do, which are primarily science-based, what better place can we really utilize those courses and those educations than in the growth? Uh, because whether it be agronomists, whether it be in, in GPS tracking on tractors. I mean, all of these technologies that are growing at such a enhanced speed, these universities can't get enough people to sign up as majors in agriculture. So I, I don't want us to think that it's uh, a waning industry. There's more people, there's more food needed. Uh, uh, one of the statements people make a lot, uh, sometime in your life, you're probably going to need a lawyer. Sometime in your life, you're probably going to need a doctor. Sometime you if you live long enough, you'll probably need an undertaker, but you're going to need <laughs> you're going to need a farmer three times a day if you intend on eating three meals yeah. a day. Going back to an earlier point Jack made, 
a lot of the things that I'm seeing right now, especially with this emerging generation of farmers, is they're taking a more global view of the world. Uh, I think, you know, and because I have the, the privilege of working with farmers that are in their 70s or 80s, mm-hmm. and I have people that I'm working with that are in their 20s. And, you know, grandson, granddaughter have a very different view of what a market can be and what and where they can sell their products. Uh, a lot of farm distribution relationships were established 50, 60 years ago, and they just continue. But there's a lot of people questioning, well, should I really sell it to that guy because that's a commodity, or can I reposition this product and sell it in a global market somewhere and make more money? Pecan farmers did Absolutely. a very good job mm-hmm. changing the dynamic of their industry by being able to sell their products directly to China mm-hmm. over the last 10 years. And so there's a lot of new thinking and perceptions of what the global economy can do for Georgia, because the reality is there's not enough food to go around. There's not. The population growth and the global economy, if you look at all the charts, all the graphs, all the trends, there's not going to be enough food, especially without American and Georgia agriculture providing a lot of that. You know, they're not going to be able to grow that food themselves. They don't have the capabilities. We're, I mean, would you say 30, 40 years ahead of some of these other, uh, certainly oh. a second or third world country, we're 40, 50 year, years Absolutely. ahead in terms of crop technology, the type of seeds, the kind of fertilizers, the type of processing, the type of harvesting, the ability for us to grow food and get it to market is unrivaled unrivaled in the world. And so there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for people that are willing to take the risk and get in there and and look for opportunity. Do you have a sense, Jack, of like the average size of a farm in terms of revenue? Like how big are these? You, you said that they're you know still typically family-owned businesses. And um, Brandon, you've been talking a lot about how, you know, you have this, you know, the relationship and you see the families. Do you know about how big these businesses are typically? Uh, they, they have changed fairly dramatically as they've concentrated most of them now, and it would depend on the commodity they produce, because a investment in size and scale of a poultry facility is going to be different than that of a person growing vegetables. Had a pretty good life lesson. I was actually in um, Hart County, Georgia, and went to the big city of Livonia, which is across <laughs> the line in Stevens County. And I was riding with a dairy farmer. And as we rode through, he said, um, please, please notice with me, if you will. He said, there's the largest Ford dealership in this town. I said, yeah, so, and we drove on a little bit farther and he said, and here's the auto parts. Yes, sir. I see that. Where's this going? Here is the the grocery store. He said, I'm a second class citizen and my yearly income and the salaries I pay people is bigger than all three of those put together. So, so they can be extremely large in that community. They can be uh, the largest employer, they can be the largest economic engine within a rural community, but it, it's hard to put an average on it because of the diversity that is agriculture in Georgia, whether that be the, the small backyard poultry flock or the gentleman who's growing 12,000 acres of cotton. Yeah. I don't think we can have a true average. Yeah, and it's also, if you think about something like a pecan orchard, you know, it takes many, many years to Absolutely. plant a, a pecan orchard. If you take a ride down 75, once you go south of Macon, you're going to be driving through a lot of big pecan orchards that you see on either side of the road. 
you know, that's a multi-year investment before you get your first nut. Whereas if you decide you want to go out and start planting peanuts, you're going to have a crop to sell that year. And, you know, the amount of land you need, the amount of water that you need, the amount of energy you need, which is a big part of all of this as well. Um, I think that's where I see a lot of very interesting innovation is in the realm of energy, mm. because it takes a lot of energy to get the materials onto the farm, to put on those plants and to take those plants or vegetables or animals or whatever it is off the farm. And, um, de and depending on the fertilizer source they used to use, choose yeah. to use, it can be a tremendous energy usage to, yes. to manufacture these fertilizers. Yeah. And so I think, uh, you know, for uh, some of the listeners out there, they may not want to become farmers, but being innovators around the inputs on farming. Because when I plant a seed, that's an input, the cost of that seed, because people buy specific mm -hmm. seeds to, I have a harvested plant, I get it off the field, I clean it, I process it, I get it to market. There's uh, the entire chain of companies and resources and inputs that have to happen. And there's a lot of amazing innovation and ideation going on in those spaces to figure out not only how do we do it better here, but how do we then take that technology and scale it up globally? Mm -hmm. um, because everybody's facing the same problems. Pleasure of going to a watermelon packing facility last summer and <laughs> the, the overview of how many times this melon, before it was placed in a box, was photographed so that it could be actually determined what size it was and what shape it was. There was a series of some 18 cameras within a matter of milliseconds that were photographing this melon to decide where it went. This one melon. This one melon. That's a continuous stream of thousands of melons. But that technology, uh, yes, that farmer is using that technology. There is a support team behind that technology to make sure it works and functions properly. Mm. For a watermelon. For, For one, watermelon. Wa one watermelon. Yeah, exactly. And I'm not a big melon fan. Much, much prefer pecans. Love pecans. We'll sell you a lot of pecans. <laughs> uh, so tell me why you decided that food was going to be your thing, Brandon. Because, I mean, you know, ostensibly you could have chosen any number of things. But why food and why Georgia Grown back in 2012? Well, historically in my company, we, we were really known as the guys who revitalized brands. So our first big case study was the revitalization of Pabst Blue Ribbon. Uh, we got to work on that brand starting in 2000. That's ice cream? No, Pabst Blue Ribbon is the uh, beer. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> PBR. So when we worked on PBR, um, it really opened us up into the beverage space. And then we went to work with Diageo and did Red Stripe mm -hmm. and worked on a number of other brands. And that led into food brands. So we had this very long history and a big experience set in revitalizing brands, which is really kind of our core skill. Figure out how do I connect with the emerging generation of buyers without alienating my existing generation of buyers. That's kind of what we do. And a friend of ours, a mutual friend, uh, Dick, uh, connected us. And uh, Commissioner Black was really keen on revitalizing the Georgia Grown program and turning that into an economic driver. He saw a real opportunity there. And uh, we were introduced to Jack through a mutual friend who said, you, you know, you, you want to hire Brandon to do the branding for this. And we ended up uh, sitting down and we did some business together in 2011. And the, the opportunity kind of evolved from there because we looked at it as an economic development kind of program, not just an advertising program. And when we mapped out our strategy for it, Jack and 
Another gentleman named Matthew Kalinsky was a big player in this, and the commissioner said, this is what we want. Yeah, make it happen. Um, and, you know, I'll have to tell you, just being very honest, uh, food itself wasn't my thing hmm. at the outset of this. It was the brand. It was only when I really started working with the farmers to understand all the different commodities and understand, okay, what is it that I'm really selling here? And really started interacting with a lot of those people that I became a food guy. And I, in a lot of ways, I would say I'm more of a farmer guy than a food guy. I really like working with agricultural people. So, you know, that's kind of what drives me. I'm working with those guys and giving them a program and seeing the pride that the farmers and ranchers have taken in this program that has a lot of Georgia pride. I mean, because it gives what I said, these, these people take a tremendous amount of personal satisfaction or derive personal satisfaction from producing a really quality crop. Again, it's not just let me grow something and sell it. It's these are my little babies. I spent a lot of time growing these babies, whatever they are. And I'm proud to share this with the world. And Georgia Grown was a chance for us to sell more of those products and share the story of those products and share that pride and that commitment with consumers or buyers. I think Brandon's being a little modest in his statement of, of relaunching, re-energizing, reinvigorating a brand. Georgia Grown program, we will say, was a non-existent program. Mm -hmm. there, there was a concept and, and there was a lot of negativity had come along with it. So full accolades to Brandon and Object 9 for, for having more than just revitalization. It, it was relaunch, restructure, rethink, redesign. Uh, I, I mean, full accolades, it's his baby. He, he, wow. he's, he's a key responsibility behind it. And the, why did the commissioner think, though, that, that there was a possibility to and an impetus to even do something that it sounds like there was some negativity around before. The negativity came from uh, going to the wonderful thing we call state law or state statute. Uh, there was a piece of legislation that would now be some 16 years old that said the Georgia Department of Agriculture shall launch a Georgia-grown program and branding campaign, period. That was the end of the discussion of it. Uh, so it became more or less of an art contest to get something as a concept on paper of what Georgia Grown should look like. And uh, Brandon and I love to joke about it. The conceptual drawing that they came up with would have been a pretty good placemat at a children's restaurant. It, 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 it was rather complicated. It, it was not a very pretty thing. And then there got to be internal bickering, and the negativity was on what can it go on? <laughs> uh, because part of the groups would say it's purity police. We must make sure it's 100% Georgia ingredients in this mm. product. And that was the negativity. I told someone it was either we would only put it on under the, the former uh, management of it. We would either only put it on something we had taken to the lab and purity tested. And then the next group would come in and we'd put it on the back of your car or your dog if it slowed down. <laughs> so uh, it was out of control to a large degree. I think some of it was, I guess, you know, Gary can speak for himself, but I feel like Gary recognized that people wanted to be proud of something. I mean, you're, you're, you're proud of this show. 
Ryan, you're proud to be a part of this, right? And when it gets celebrated, you feel good about all the work that you do that no one really recognizes. You know, I believe a long time ago, I kind of learned early in my life that it's always nicer to be patted on the back than punched in the stomach. And when you're a farmer, you get punched in the stomach a lot. You know, there's certainly, you know, whether it's weather or legislation or pricing or things that are out of your control, there's a lot against you. And to have a program that celebrates and appreciates, yeah, what you're about, what you're the effort that you're making, you don't always have success. Sometimes the, you know, the weather transpires against you. I think Gary recognized that people want that and need that. And the other thing that I think we did bring to it was, you know, we're good at setting up a marketing system, right? How do you... That's all, we optic nine. Yes. I'm sorry. Well, but, but even the, the Department of Agriculture working together because we have to understand their... You know, what resources you have. I mean, you guys have a different set of resources here than the Department of Ag, which is different than the pecan guys, right? We're able, we were able to go in and figure out this is how we can move the needle and how we can get product in here in a way that helps these guys. And really one of the big insights for me in working with farmers is farmers certainly enjoy the farmer's market. I think that's a big, interesting trend, right? There, a lot of urban people love the idea of farmer's markets, but a lot of farmers would rather just, let me sell the whole orchard to one person and stay on the farm and start planting the next one versus let me go into a farmer's market and sell onesie, twosie bushels of peaches or something to you. And so there's this you know, interesting dichotomy of people that are you know, looking for different distribution channels and whatnot. And we were able to come in and figure out Here's a lot of different ways that people can take their product to market in a way that satisfies their business model as a farmer. And just like Jack said earlier, there's a there's no one size fits all in terms of this is an average because they're so different. It's the same for the distribution channels and the marketing channels. The Springer Mountain model is very different than the Tyson model mm-hmm. just because, yeah, they both make chicken. They make broilers, but they do it and sell it in a different way. So Brandon, Jack. Brandon hit on an extremely important point. I, I mentioned that that we went and attended a state branding conference in, in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and the fact that these other states were not experiencing the success we were. And part of that problem was initially when we relaunched this program, any number of paid radio stations, TVs, advertising spots, advertise Georgia Grown, drive consumers. You can't drive consumers to go to the store shelves or to the restaurants or or places to buy the product unless it's labeled. And this has been to some degree the failure of the other state branding programs. You drive us to go buy, and I'm not going to call a state's name, you drive us to go to the store, tell our, our consumers, our general public in the state, they should source that. They can't identify it. You can't find it. <laughs> you can't find it. Yeah. So I don't know if this peach is a Georgia peach or a wherever else. They yeah. Exactly. Peach, so unless we can tell the consumer, how could you drive them to make a purchase when you can't identify it? Okay. And And we have not reached our pinnacle, but no. uh, we, we, we do, going into the, the average store, see a lot of these Georgia-grown brands. I, I tell people we have, to some degree, arrived when my three-year-old grandchild in the cart with his mother will point and say, Mommy, buy that. 
and he has no concept of what he's even looking at, but he sees a Georgia grown brand. Mm. Yeah. Great. And it's been rewarding as a marketer to walk into so many different places now and see companies, I mean, companies I've never even heard of that have bought into the Georgia grown program and are putting that logo, that logo on their packaging. And it's, it, you know, they're taking ownership of it and go back to your question of well, why do you think Gary wanted to do this? I think he recognized that people wanted to buy into something that stood for the industry and stood for that pride in agriculture and pride in making things locally. You know, how it was articulated may have been a little bit differently, but I think he understood that people are proud of it. Mm -hmm. You know, we all have our things that we care about and people that grow up in rural areas or on farms are very passionate about that. He knew that. Yeah. So you mentioned something a couple minutes ago, strategy, which is, you know, my love um, and what I what I do. Mm-hmm. How did you think about the, the strategy for the marketing campaign and, you know, h- how to actually have it produce results? Right. Because you talked about most, um, you know, most of these things are, are advertising, yes. not marketing. Yeah. Um, and like, what's your thought on how to tie this conceptual? First of all, how did you develop the concept, right? And the strategy as a whole. And if you could say what the strategy was sure. in a couple sentence out, senses, that would be helpful. Um, and then how did you actually get it to produce results? And then how would you summarize like the top three or four results? I'm a very quantitative person. So if you can give me some numbers, I would love it. Uh, you know, that, that Georgia Grown has produced. Okay. You want me to handle that one? Please. Yeah. I'll, I'll chime in if you don't mind. So the core strategy, or so first of all, let me say that I, I really believe that you do not build a brand with advertising. You build it through public relations in terms of creating awareness. Uh, you defend a brand with advertising, but you're not going to build it that way. So when we got involved in the program, we built a five different pillars that economic development, marketing, promotion, education, wellness, health and nutrition, and culture. Those were the five tenets of the program. That was the big tent concepts and where we could invite partners into the Georgia Grown Tent to help us get the word out because we did not have enough money and resources to get the word out ourselves. We were operating on a very limited budget. So we essentially created a membership structure for the Department of Agri- or for the Georgia Grown Program, and we brought a number of founding circle partners into that big tent, gave them connections and access and resources in exchange for their media inventory, so that we were able to use their media inventory, mostly public relations, editorial kinds of content to expand awareness of the Georgia Grown Program. So that was our primary outreach strategy. Our direct strategy for growing the program, the very first thing we did was to sit down with the distribution channels. In fact, the very first meeting was with Atlanta Farmers Market, meeting with all of the produce guys to figure out how we could get in the door with big grocery chains. Because we recognized before we worried about trying to get consumers we needed to get the product on the shelf and by having buyer preference for Georgia grown brands, the people that were making product, growing product or manufacturing it into something like a jelly jam or whatever, would now have a very specific market for their product and they could tie sales back to their membership in the program. Mm-hmm. So the strategy was about, let me create revenue opportunities 
for all of the smaller companies and open up new markets for them. And if I do that, I gain the brand impressions for all the stores. I gain the media channels for all the stores, and I'll come back and explain that in a minute. Once I have that going, I have real revenue flow that I can measure from my membership. And then I could begin creating more awareness for the business community to say, if you're not a member of Georgia Grown and your products aren't being sold or you're not supporting this cause that we know you love, then you need to become a member of Georgia Grown. And then we reached out through the chambers, especially the rural chambers, because the, the bigger members of these rural chambers were clearly manufacturers or farmers. And we were able to bring in a number of people. So the number one year goal, I think, for the membership, you said was 200 people. You thought if we had 200 people given the government money, you would be stunned. <laughs> and we ended up with 305 the first year, actually by November of the first year we had, we popped 300 members. We gained $1.2 million of earned media inventory through partnerships that we had with places like the Georgia EMCs and farm bureaus, the Georgia chambers, and some other magazine entities that were really focused on food where we did essentially membership for media mm -hmm. inventory. The economic drivers, since we started, the industry was 70 billion when we started, and now it's at 77 billion. So in the last five years, well, really four years, that would have been three. So 2012 to 2015, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that would have been 2011 to 2015. So we're responsible for that 7 billion. I'll, I'll live with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we played a part in it. Oh, I'm sure, sure we did. Yeah. I'm sure we did. Um, as, as we talk, these commodity prices of the cotton, the soybeans, the corn, as they go downward, yeah. what is replacing it? We're not the San Joaquin Valley in California, New York. I'm not against them. I don't want to go move there. I don't want to live there. I live where I love, and that's Georgia. <laughs> but uh, that's considered the breadbasket of the Western United States. Georgia should be considered the breadbasket in terms of fruits and vegetables of, of, of this yeah. Eastern United States. And I think we're seeing part of that. I think part of that growth truthfully is from that. Yeah. Well, if you judge based on how many brands are, I think there's over 500 brands now is what Matthew was speculating, I believe. I Don't quote me on that one, obviously, but... We have somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 members now in the database of brands that are using Georgia Grown in some way. And so the advantages of that, so let's say the first big partnership that we had with a grocery chain, which was our strategy, was with Harvey's. Mm -hmm. Harvey's put Georgia Grown in 72 stores. 72, yeah, yes. sounds right. 72 stores. Primarily a Southern phenomenon. Right. We don't see them in Atlanta Metro. Right. So they have a certain amount of traffic. I'm not going to quote all the numbers because I, I, I'm not sure what the recent ones are, but they have foot traffic that goes through there. So when they became Georgia Grown members, they first started specifically sourcing from Georgia Grown brands. They were preferring Georgia Grown brands for their locally grown section over all others. Second, they put signage up in all the stores. And so all the foot traffic, let's say it was 18,000 people a week going through mm -hmm. this particular Harvey's. I think it was around 18,000. They also, so you had that foot traffic, everybody seeing the Georgia Grown brand every single week, at least, sometimes twice or three times a week. On top of that, they were producing 1.2 million circulars a week. And if you look at the 
Georgia grown, if you look at their their food circulars, mm-hmm. every Georgia grown brand has the Georgia grown logo beside it. So if there's Springer, Springer Mountain Chicken being advertised, there's the logo. I think Kroger's does that too. Oh, yeah. Yes. So Kroger's is doing it. Kroger's actually had a big Georgia grown billboard up on 85. 73 in Metro Atlanta. Okay. 73 billboards. Yeah. So we're gaining all of those brand impressions through the partnerships that we were able to build. And that has created a substantial amount of awareness. When we started in 2011, we we need to do another brand study. Uh, but our brand awareness, I think, was under 15%, unaided brand awareness. And I mean, I would say now it's probably over 50. I would I mean, that would be my guess. Um, even in rural markets, we were not particularly pulling that well. Mm-hmm. So the strategy, again, mapped out for you right there. That's how you do it, guys. Very, good. very, very <laughs> At good. At least if you're trying to do a grow a commodity marketing program. Yeah. Awesome. What would you say is like new and exciting that, that you think is expecting, you're expecting in the future for Georgia Ground? Where are you going to take things? Wow. The sky's the limit. We, we, we were the victim. What a happy place to be a victim of. We were the victim of unbelievable vertical growth. And, and we weren't prepared for that. We quite honestly... Uh, with limited budget, with limited resources from the Georgia Department of Agriculture to to actually denote to it, we were overwhelmed, dramatically overwhelmed. I mean, uh, the number of members of, I, I think today, looking at the potential and where we go, I think we're at the point that that today the growth is organic. I don't think we have to worry about pushing the growth. I think my memory is that since December 1st, we have 31 new members that required zero contact. These are people who, because of the reputation of the program, because of the good things it's done, because of the successes of others, 31 people come and say, we are ready to join this program. We're a part of this team. I think that organic growth will continue and probably escalate. I think our biggest challenge is to make sure that we provide for these people who are joining this program continued opportunities. And, and, and I think we're not in the business of stabilization and status quo. Uh, that, that, that I would never want misinterpreted. But I think we do need to make sure that our foundations remain sound and we continue to give these people who are coming on the support they deserve. Because uh, simply giving us money is not the solution. If we don't offer them opportunities for growth and their business improvement, we haven't fulfilled the mission of the program. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's changed is it seems like the, you know, when we went into it, the expectations were extraordinarily low. More realistic, maybe. <laughs> well, but they were very low they were. Com- compared to where we ended up for sure. But Absolutely. They, you know, we, we, we went way beyond. Um, and in a lot of ways we had to shut down activity because we could not process all the opportunity that we created. And I think now it's become more of a, let's focus on the retail partners and the distribution partners like Kroger and Whole Foods and Harvey's and whatnot in and, and those big areas because they have become much more proactive partners Absolutely. in the program than they were four years ago. You know, four years ago it was, you want us to do what? And a few people bought into it because they believed in the cause. And when they saw the benefits and the consumer reaction to having Georgia-grown sections and that that cause being extended into their consumers, their patrons for their grocery stores, we were able to take that 
awareness and those metrics and that activity and go share that. And so now the retailers see that there is a passion and a need for the Georgia Grown brand and brands in their spaces. And so they're asking for more and bringing more to the table. And it's been very helpful to grow the brand. So being in 73 Kroger's in Atlanta alone has its own demands in terms of supporting that kind of program and that activation compared to being in 72 Harvey's spread across smaller markets in South Georgia. Uh, those are really good opportunities. So I would say some of the energy is focusing on the distribution channels, still finding new ways to open up opportunities. Never want to lose sight of the strategy that our job is to create opportunities for farmers and producers of food to sell their products at market. And that's what we're here for. Not just as, you know, woohoo, Georgia grown. It's our job is to move cases out of warehouses mm -hmm. or truckloads off of farms. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where our focus is. And then the, as Jack said, the organic growth, the consumer side, the pull, all of that is happening through some other initiatives. I think you're going to see more social because that's been a great way of sharing a lot of the food and the stories and the usage. You know, recipes are great for <laughs> social media. So it's a great way of driving traffic. Because like Jack said, you got to eat three times a day. So after a while, you want to, you want to, you want some variety. Yeah. Know? And so Brandon, what's, what's going to happen with object nine and, and you know what? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about you specifically. The last couple of years has been a real, acceleration into the digital space mm -hmm. around marketing automation and social media in particular, uh, helping people figure out how to convert website traffic and people observing the brand from afar, uh, bringing them into a sales funnel and converting them into customers. So I don't see that changing a lot. We have a tremendous amount of demand around those areas. Great. So hopefully continue to work on food and farm related brands just because it's very enjoyable group of people to work with. And you know, when you're in the world of marketing or, well, anything, it's who you work with is a big part of the work you do. Yeah. And when you work with clients that you really like and about a cause that matters, you feel like makes a difference. It keeps the creativity flowing in a way that, you know, some other clients may not stimulate. Great. Well, it's been absolutely wonderful having you on the show talking about food today. And uh, I hope that uh, you guys continue to, to keep us all well-fed, you know, well-nourished with the great Georgia-grown stuff. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at AnonaEnterprises.com.